What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast could be sponsored by you, the listener, by heading on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas writer. There you can become a patron and support the show as I continue to grow, keep the website up to date, um, keep you informed with everything that I'm doing right now, and uh, eventually get a facelift for the website. Um, Every little bit helps, helps keep the lights on, all that good stuff. So again, just head on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas writer and uh, become a patron today. Um, also check out chasethomaspodcast.com. It's uh, my site where you can learn a little about me, uh, get a, a direct link to every single episode, um, all that good stuff. You can also read all of my work. I'm basically writing there every day. Um, the schedule that I have right now for uh, my writing on the site is on Sundays. I'm doing an ATL sports column. Um, kind of traditional in that sense, depending on what's going on in Atlanta sports that week. On Mondays, I am doing a 30 things on the NBA um, that I'm excited about because the NBA is coming back soon. Uh, Tuesdays, I'm doing a Monday Night Raw recap and review. Uh, Wednesday, I am doing a SmackDown Live uh, review. On Thursdays, I am doing a Throwback Thursday, so I'll watch a game because I like watching old highlights. I like watching like 1998 Minnesota Vikings versus like the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, things like that, where Randy Moss went off. Um, so I'm going back watching old games, uh, and I will be writing about them as if they are happened right now and all that good stuff on Fridays. I'm doing a nobody asked mailbag where I, uh, just, I have a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts on sports and I can turn them into questions and, uh, I'm going to write about them in a nobody asked mailbag. So you can find that on Fridays on Saturdays. It's, um, it's just a Saturday morning thought. So things I, w- I thought about during the week, that I just want to write about and uh, mixed in with all of that, uh, just other kinds of articles. Like when I wrote about Bruno Caboclo and why it's interesting that the Houston Rockets are taking a chance on it more. Jimmy Butler and his rumored flirtation with uh, the Lakers and why um, he might be a better fit for uh, Kawhi Leonard instead of LeBron James and uh, all that good stuff. So uh, other articles um, spread out throughout the week all that good stuff, but you can find all of that by going to chase podcast.com. Uh, don't forget. There's a lot of ways you can listen. Spotify is a popular one now, so you can find the chase on podcast on Apple podcast, Stitcher, um, Google play, uh, everything else that you could possibly think of, uh, cast box, um, just uh, all kinds of great stuff. So Spotify, Apple podcast, Google play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, of course, uh, but yeah, just search Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it. And if you are an Apple Podcast listener, uh, it'd be great if you could leave the show a reading and a review. Um, it's just, it's important uh, with the way iTunes works. So it'll help other people find the show, help the show continue to grow. Um, so that'd be great. So if you, uh, if you are an uh, Apple Podcast listener, it would be great if you could leave a rating and a review uh, for the show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. And uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. 
All right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday night episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the line right now, a guy very familiar with the team that is uh, 2-0, and top 5 in uh, DVOA, number 1 or number 2, something like that, defensive DVOA. It's all weird. They're ahead of the Patriots in the AFC East as we're recording this podcast. And to make sense of the Dolphins' hot start, it's Travis Wingfield of Locked On Dolphins. Travis, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Um, I'm doing pretty well, but I don't think I'm doing... Miami Dolphin fan well because I feel like it's just it's almost like they just went 16 and 0 again because if I read one more like the finsider.com piece where it's like I think they're already selling shirts of like keep doubting us I, I'm pretty sure stop doubting us is the shirt that um is available right now on the finsider.com and I just uh I, I love the optimism because this is a team that uh really could use some right now and Everybody was buying into Sam Darnold after his demolition of a Detroit Lions team that may be significantly worse than we had anticipated uh, in the preseason. And the Patriots have not completed a pass 20 yards downfield to any receiver. So things are pretty good in Miami, but uh, I would just, I would think that if you're a Dolphins fan, you want to keep flying under the radar, right? Yeah, that's kind of been the moniker all offseason long. You know, everyone keeps on doubting the Dolphins saying they don't have a or they have a bottom three roster and Adam Gaze is in over his head and they don't have a plan. But, you know, if you follow my work on my Twitter timeline and it locked on dolphins, then you know that I was kind of flying in the uh, contrarian lane when it comes to that, because I saw a pretty good plan to build a team around the quarterback and a quarterback that the coach trusts and a quarterback that the, the coach makes his play calls for and, and really seems to have a good relationship with and the defense finding a way to, get better on the back end in terms of pass defense. And that's, that's played dividend or paid dividends so far, you know, 56.6 passer rating allowed tops in the NFL. So, I mean, I, not to be that guy, but I kind of saw this coming at least this hot start with the kind of favorable schedule and, and the fact that they were getting the quarterback back and a lot of improvements all over the roster. How excited are you to get the Raiders in week three? I, I was just looking at the matchup. I just wrote my, my column for the preview piece and, I don't really see anywhere where the Raiders outmatch the Dolphins. So to put it lightly, uh, I'm pretty excited. Okay. Um, It's amazing because I think they have one of the best first round picks from this past year that kind of went just like Minka Fitzpatrick. He's, he's a safety for them now. Rashad Jones, those two are just, they look like they're locked in to just be uh, just a a dynamic duo for the Dolphins, at least this year and uh, for the next couple of years. And you know, like you said, I think a lot of people just didn't see this coming, especially on defense. But at the same time, like my worry with them, um, it did seem like it was a little weird with what they were doing with offense. Like they brought in Dow Logans, uh, who has bounced around a lot, and he has familiarity with Adam Gase. You know that from his Chicago days and all that. But um, you looked at like Ryan Tannehill's health. You looked at uh, Kenyon Drake not starting and Frank Gore at like 37 years old, uh, getting a majority of the carries potentially. And you looked at Devontae Parker, who I still can't quit, who uh, <laughs> the Dolphins seemingly still can't quit. And you're just like, okay, this is a little bit more difficult. But um, I was always higher on them than I was the Bills and I think the Jets, at least for this year. But at the same time, I would be lying if I thought 
that they would be sitting at 2 and 0 right now, but it's an it's an impressive 2 now because there are teams that I think and a team that uh, I think you're probably pretty familiar with, a uh, little up north in Florida in Tampa Bay where it's like they have one of the worst running games in football, but Ryan Fitzpatrick is just losing his mind to Mike Evans, to Sean Jackson and everybody. So, um, it doesn't seem a sta- uh sustainable uh, for the bucks to continue on this trend because their defense is still trash and uh, they have no running game and uh, the chiefs who they're often compared to right now uh, the chiefs actually have cream hunt and they are finding ways to move the ball around a a multitude of ways even with their 32nd ranked defense so um, I, i just think that there is a sustainability factor here with the dolphins because just you look up and down the board and it's just, they still don't have Devonte Parker. Kenny stills looks like he is a man on a mission. You have all these different weapons right now. Laramie Tunsil looks like he's taking a step forward and he could become a top 10 left tackle in the league this year. And you know, it's, it seems like it's one of those years where, you know what, like we may have been down on them a little bit, but this is what can happen if all the right guys come together at the right time for a team. Yeah. And that was the message of the entire off season was they're trying to build the right 53 over the best 53 and it's it's a tired cliche i get that but i mean it makes sense in miami because you have a team that all of a sudden isn't as focused on the individual accomplishments and we have direct reports from that from both jarvis landry and jay ajayi and i even had joe shad he covers the dolphins for the palm beach post on my podcast back in i think it was november of last year he was just talking about how that group as a whole didn't rally around adversity they kind of took it on themselves and just let it bury the season and bury their individual performances. So you have a new group of leaders, a new group of core players that has just kind of changed. Like I said, it's cliche as hell, but changed the culture of the football team. And, you know, it's a team game. It's a team aspect. And we kind of saw with the Philadelphia Eagles last year and not to compare the two, because obviously that's a Super Bowl winning team. And I don't think Miami is that, but it definitely has an impact. And it has this year for the Dolphins. How worried are you every bad hit that Ryan Tannehill takes? Because he got crunched up a little bit by Darren Lee in this uh, past Sunday's game. But um, it does seem like this team lives... I mean, most teams in the NFL live and die by their quarterback's health. But it does seem like there is so much riding on Ryan Tannehill staying upright this season. Um, even for Adam Gase, because we knew they were sniffing around Baker Mayfield and guys like that in the top 10. And um, But it's just one of those things where if Ryan Tannehill is healthy, I've always liked him if he can stay on the field. Um, and right now you see what he can do because he could still go downfield. He had that 75-yard bomb to uh, Kenny Stills on Sunday that uh, Adam Gase just schemed up, and it was a beautiful like route that he and uh, I want to say, was it Wilson who he ran in intertwined with? It, it was somebody like that. Another guy who they substituted Jarvis Landry and they inserted – um, Albert Wilson, who was really good for the Chiefs last year, along with uh, Jakeem Grant, who I believe may be the fastest guy in the NFL right now. Uh, it, th- that might be the case. Yeah, I, I, he's a four-three-eight guy. And the three of those guys uh, all together, it's just a lot of speed to deal with. And the Dolphins have been able to, to maximize those opportunities. They had another chance to hit Wilson on a deep ball in the Jets game, and Tannehill just overshot him by a couple of feet on that throw. So they, they are creating opportunities in the downfield passing game because of that speed. And the running game obviously helps with that too. And they're getting those outside matchups because of those guys speed. And what it also does is creates opportunities underneath because when you're going to play, you know, single eye safety or man press coverage, they have to really be prepared to, to turn and burn. And if they do that, you can hit them with a back shoulder or a hitch route or a comeback route or whatever it is that comes back towards the quarterback. So 
you mentioned those three, you mentioned Ryan Tannehill, you know, as far as the health goes, it's, that's past my concern at this point. He played 77 games to begin his career, took a really tough shot, a Tom Brady like shot, a, you know, Carson Palmer type shot. The one that takes out the quarterback's knee, the one that is against the rules, took that niche, that shot to his knee, tried to do it without surgery, which in my opinion was a, a huge, huge mistake. And now he's back and, he had eight designed runs on Sunday. He got sacked and contorted a little bit oddly a couple times. It's just, it's not a concern anymore. I mean, ACL surgeries are not what they used to be. And this was a simple one, a clean one, a clean single ACL tear. And I see no reason why he's any different than he was before the injury. Okay. Um, how do Dolphins fans feel about Ryan Tannehill at this point in his career and in Miami? Is this still somebody that they can rally behind, that they believe in, can get them to the Super Bowl? Or um, are they ready for the next guy? How do uh, Dolphins fans feel about him right now? <laughs> I guess it depends. It's, it's kind of like uh, Trump versus Hillary. Who, who do you want to ask? Because it's the most divisive, mm. polarizing figure I can recall as a Dolphins fan. And I've been a fan of this team since I was, you know, in diapers. So going back 20-something years. And, you know, it's, it's just pretty crazy the divisiveness that a quarterback can create. And, you know, every Sunday after the game, it's, did, we, did we win the game? And if we did, is it because of Tannehill or was it in spite of him? And if we lost the game, it was definitely Tannehill's fault. So, you know, I'm a supporter of Tannehill. You mentioned the strengths of his game. He can throw the ball down the field. He's very accurate in the short to intermediate area. He doesn't miss layups. He does struggle with some things like processing post-snap rotation and different disguise coverages. And he does hold onto the ball too long at times. Now, that improved in 2016, but then he comes back this year. And after Josh Sitton went down, you mentioned the, the pressure of the Jets and Deron Lee and, or, or Darren Lee, excuse me, and what they were able to do to the Dolphins' offensive line. They got a lot of pressure on Tannehill, and he looked uncomfortable. And I think most quarterbacks are, especially when that pressure comes from up the middle on the interior. And that did happen. So he's got to improve in that area to really kind of solidify his place in the franchise. But I think as long as they continue to win, I don't know. Some of those fans that are just always anti-quarterback, no matter who it is, or if they're not Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, you know, that they're not any good. He is in that, you know, top 12 to 15 range of quarterbacks right now. I think he has a chance to ascend beyond that with Adam Gaze in his back pocket, because you go back to when he was with Joe Philbin and Mike Sherman and Bill Lazor and Dan Campbell, and this just ragtag group of coaches that are all out of the league at this point. I mean, he didn't have the right system built around him. And we've seen, what proper coaching can do to a quarterback that has talent and Tannehill certainly does have the talent. Well, I wouldn't hold out hope uh, for Bill Lazor figuring it out with Ryan Tannehill in Miami. It seems like that. Yeah. Um, I like Bill Lazor. I like Bill Lazor, yeah. but I, it's just, I mean, the, the surrounding He's doing wonders for uh, Andy Dalton in Cincinnati this year. It looks like he, he is. That offense looks nice right now. And he, I think, you know, 2014 was actually Tannehill's best statistical year. And that was the Bill mm-hmm. Lazor year. But you look back at like, the offensive line they had that year, for instance, you know, Dallas Thomas and Billy Turner, a couple of draft picks that year that just got railroaded over and over again. And, and you know, couldn't even couldn't couldn't handle, you know, the most basic of blocking schemes. So it, it's, it's kind of come together this year where he finally has the right surrounding cash. And maybe that's an indictment of the quarterback that he has to have things in a certain way. But I think that's the case for all but about four or five quarterbacks in this league. So I'm OK with it. He, he's more than adequate enough to win games with. And I'm happy to have him. So is he more divisive than Cleo Lemon among Dolphins? That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Cleo Lemon, man. I'll never forget Cleo Lemon because he obviously had that, that one big touchdown pass when the Dolphins were you know on the doorstep of going 0-16. But then they played the mm-hmm. Patriots the next week, and we were like, that's our Super Bowl. We're 1-14. and we got to win this game. And he stepped out of bounds on like a fourth down play. And ever since then, I was just like, all right, Cleo, everything you did good has been undone because of that one play. Isn't Tannehill the best Dolphins quarterback in your lifetime? 
Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I was I was a kid in the '90s when Moreno was around, but I mean, right? Yeah, he doesn't really count for any of us that were pretty young when he was basically declining and moving on, because his prime was really more the '80s and early '90s when we were not able to watch football games and appreciate it. So, yeah, exactly. It does seem like if you had to go down the list, like it's not as uh, devastating as the Chiefs' list of past quarterbacks before they had Pat Mahomes, but it is a uh, pretty bad post Marino. So I, I do feel like I mean. Um, Chad Pennington, that great year. Um, who could ever forget uh, the Chad Pennington era in Miami? But um, it does seem like it might be him. Or Culpepper, maybe. The Culpepper, uh, did he go coincide with uh, Nick Saban? Did, were they together? Was that? Yeah, he was. Uh, remembering that? He was the, the very terrible consolation prize from the Drew Brees sweepstakes. And they ended up getting right. in 2006, they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a Super Bowl pick, and he played four right. games, went one and three. I think his pass rating was like in the 60s, and then he was gone. So okay. he, he, he came in with high expectations, it. but it didn't, it didn't translate. Okay. Um, it does feel like when you watch this Dolphins team, you know what it kind of reminds me of in Tannehill especially is that like we saw this a little bit a couple years ago with Matt Stafford in Detroit when Jim Bob Cooter took over as OC. You saw that like losing Calvin Johnson and changing OCs was the right kind of deal for him where it was like he was able to throw to Marvin Jones. He was able to throw to Golden Tate. He was able to throw to his uh, Eric Ebron. He was able to throw to Zach Zinner. He was able to throw to Amir Abdullah. Like he had a, he didn't have the pressure of just finding his elite receiver and he grew as a quarterback because of it. They simplified the game for him. He wasn't just throwing it up, uh, going downfield all the time, just a gunner in like a dirt cutter style offense where it's just like seam route, seam route, seam route, um, and just find your superstar receiver when you can and target him 19 times a game and everything. Um, Ryan Tannehill now, he gets the opportunity to kind of facilitate a bunch of different guys. He has a bunch of different options. He has Kenyon Drake out of the backfield. He has, um, like we talked about, Albert Wilson. He has Jakeem Grant now who he can throw to in the slot and do screens and all kinds of stuff. And Albert Wilson's obviously a great screen guy. And then you have Devontae Parker looming as a deep threat um, when he ever gets back. And then you have Kenny Stills, who is just maybe his best option. But he's able to go to a lot of different guys now and it seems like they're helping him out in a way where okay yeah Jarvis Landry is a great talent and all that but like um Albert Wilson grades out better than Jarvis Landry this year there is something to be said about just having an an Albert Wilson and a Jakeem Grant over just having a Jarvis Landry that kind of safety spot that I've I've seen him compared to just being an anchor because like you, he's so good underneath that it's just easy for a quarterback to just zone in on him over and over again because he's so good that you forget about spreading the ball around. And that just seems like a really important thing that the superstar quarterbacks like Drew Brees, Brady, and all those guys, they understand that. They can get around. But if you're not a top five quarterback, it's easy to see how those guys get um, kind of sidetracked by their superstar receivers. I mean, Matt Ryan's done it with Julio. He had like 18 targets a couple weeks ago. You have guys who... It's just they, they find guys they trust and they just over they get a little overzealous with them and they go up to them too much and now I think it's uh we're seeing the positives of moving on from Jarvis Landry and guys like that where and JHI too is where you may not have the household names but it actually turns out uh, that it's a positive to just have a, a lot more interesting pieces that uh, don't demand uh, a ton of targets every game. Yeah, the Atlanta Falcons uh, comparison is a good one. I like to go back to Calvin Johnson with the Detroit Lions, too. Once they got, I, I want to say it was Golden Tate, they became a much more well-balanced offense. And that's, you know, it, the Dolphins don't have the Julio Jones or Calvin Johnson, obviously, which is apparent when it comes down to third downs or red zone when you need that guy. 
who could consistently beat double coverage or bracket coverage or just make a contested catch. They don't really have that guy. They're going to have to find that guy, I think, in the offseason. But you, you mentioned the ball distribution. That's a tough thing for the defense to have to do is to defend all those guys because you don't know where the ball is going. And you mentioned Jarvis Landry getting open on all those routes. He had a lot of routes that were very easy to get open on, like it's a flat route where they, you know, they do a, a rub route for him and get him open with a pick or you know something like a bubble screen. And he caught so many passes on those simple routes. And yeah, he's great at breaking tackles, but he doesn't really you know, check in with the huge runs that often. So he'd get a catch for three or four yards every now and then. But I mean, as far as spreading the ball around and getting it to these playmakers, they've, had a, they've done a much better job of that this year rather than force feeding just one target like you mentioned. Yeah, and I should mention Danny Amendola, who we all just assumed was going to be, um, excuse my French here, absolute dog shit since signing uh, with the Dolphins, going away from Tom Brady and everything, where people just assume that if you leave the Patriots, you're done. And yeah. that's not the case. Like Jamie Collins is still a really good football player and Chandler Jones is still killing it in Arizona, even though the team as a whole is not like just because you move on from the Pats and get paid by somebody else doesn't necessarily mean you're uh, not going to work out. I think the 49ers are still pretty okay with uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and not everything's a Matt Castle type situation or somebody like that. Or uh, I don't even know who else falls into this category, like Chad Jackson, Aaron Dotson. I mean, we can go up and down the list, but um yeah, uh, Danny Amendola. I just feel like I should mention him because he's uh, he's not bad for them. He's another guy, so uh, that's it's good for him. But um, I did have another question um, regarding this Dolphins team, which is if Adam Gase started off like 1-1 one and one, and maybe they lost to Oakland this weekend and they were like 1-2, and two, do you think the seat would get really hot for him or do you think Chris Greer and Tannenbaum and this front office and brain trust has the faith in him to – write this ship and give him time to figure stuff out because it, it did seem like he, yeah he had that uh, down year in year two but like when you have that kind of uncertainty at quarterback that kind of stuff can happen and then the turnover with the roster and changing the culture and moving on from a lot of guys that uh, um, just needed to move on it's fine they're in better situations now and they're still going to be okay they're good players it just didn't fit and not the right group of guys that we talked about and then you just um, kind of bank on the change of the culture, but that takes time. And Adam Gase was just like this crown jewel just a couple of years ago in head coaching searches. And it seemed like after he had that great year one and eh, year two, and now it's like, he's back again. Um, is this somebody that you think that this front office and this um, brain trust believes in long-term and that even if they did get off to a bad start, they would still believe that he can figure this out. And this is someone that deserves like three or four, maybe five years. Yeah, I definitely think that he was he was never really on the hot seat per se. I mean, obviously that can change if they if things had spun out of control this year. And I think his biggest gamble was something you mentioned earlier was not really, you know, supplementing the quarterback position behind Ryan Tannehill because you mentioned it. If Tannehill goes down, this team, I don't know if they win another game this year. That's how bad the backup situation is. So if that had happened, I think you might begin to let that creep into your mind because with Ryan Tannehill, they're not going to lose more than, you know, I think like 10 games was the max amount of games they would lose with Tannehill under center. He's just too stable to have a season go haywire on him like that. But if it started off slowly, I think they would have afforded him some more time just because like you mentioned, you know, it was 637 days since Tannehill had last played a football game. You had all these moving parts on the offense. You mentioned Danny Amendola, Albert Wilson were both new guys, he had a new left guard, a new center, a whole new tight end core. So there was a lot of moving parts on this offense and for them to, cut bait on that a few games in or, or start to get worried a few games in and a little bit premature but I mean if it had continued in that direction I could certainly see 
where that conversation opens up. But I think that he was already going to be afforded at least the first half of the season before we even started to entertain that idea, if that makes sense. Where do you see the season going? I mean, I know it's still very early and we need to kind of really pump the brakes on a lot of teams right now. I don't think the Bucks are going 16-0. Uh, and 0. I don't <laughs> think the Dolphins are going 14-2. and 2, But it does feel like if Tannehill's healthy and this group stays um, on the track that they're on. And I mean, the AFC East, I mean, it's pretty bad. And this is the worst the Patriots have looked in a while. I mean, Belichick was down double, di- double digits for the longest amount of time for the third time in his, uh, uh, since like 2001, I want to say like, that's just, it's only happened three times where they've been down double digits for at least like three quarters. And, you know, I mean, they traded for Josh Gordon this week and it looks like they're kind of like, you know, we got to make some moves and, um, the Jets are starting a rookie quarterback and the Bills are probably the worst team in football. So, I mean, the wins are there and I mean, the schedule's kind and uh, they beat the teams that they're supposed to beat. Like the Titans, uh, I don't think are very good. And um, the Jets, like I just mentioned, are, they'll be okay, I guess. And then the Raiders, um, they should have beat the Broncos, but they lost. And now they have to play a pretty solid uh, Dolphins team. And it looks like this Dolphins team is at the very least going to maintain a top 10 defense. And if Devontae Parker comes back and these guys stay healthy and Tannehill stays healthy, they should flirt with a top 10 offensive DVOA as well. So if that's the case, I don't see how this team doesn't win nine or 10 games and get back to the playoffs because this is a team that it looks better than the playoff team a couple years ago. So uh, I just, I feel like this Dolphins team um, is in good shape, especially because the AFC is just, it's really, really weak right now. And I think this is the year to kind of take advantage of that. It feels kind of like the Bengals a couple years ago with Andy Dalton, where it was like, oh, you know what? If they won the division and they had a healthy Andy Dalton in the playoffs and just the way everything else looked right now, it's wide open. They should be in the Super Bowl. And then, of course, he got injured. and They lost that brutal, awful game against the Steelers in the playoffs. But I, I do feel like there is some potential there where the Dolphins uh, kind of make some serious noise. I don't want to get Dolphins fans too excited and then be responsible for <laughs> the bottom to fall out. But I do, um, I'm pretty optimistic about this team. And I also just really like Adam Gase. So maybe that's all it is. Well, I mean, what do you need me for? You just went through the entire list of reasons why I am bullish on this team and have been bullish on this team. You mentioned the the soft AFC, the dreadful AFC East below the Dolphins and Patriots. I always thought lumping the Dolphins in with the Jets and Bills was very irresponsible and just overall bad, you know, analysis because you look at the Bills roster. I mean, I don't know how anyone thought that was going to work out this year. The Jets, for what they are, with all the hope they have around Sam Darnold, you know, they still have a coaching staff that has been much maligned. They still have a lack of, you know, real difference-making pass rushers. Their offensive skill sets aren't really that great. So I just think there's a big discrepancy there between – I think there's a big fall-off from New England to Miami and then another big fall-off from Miami to the Jets and Bills. And you talked about the schedule. So if you're looking at it right now, the Dolphins, let's say 10-6 and gets you in the AFC, probably guaranteed. I think 10 wins would do the trick, like, without without a doubt. So right now they have two wins in their back pocket. They got to get eight wins against, you mentioned two against the Bills. I mean, is, if they lose to the Bills, they have different problems. They have a game against the Colts. They play the Jets again at home. They play a bad Lions team at home. They have the Raiders coming up, like you mentioned. So there's a lot of wins built into that schedule right there, as long as they just play, you know, their B game even. And obviously they've given the Patriots problems at home in the past. They bring their A game in that one and then some other opponents as well. But I just think the balance and the depth of this roster, you look at every position group and there really isn't a severe weakness. Whereas in the past, you know, that's part of the reason you, you cut someone like Indomitian Sue is to redistribute some of those funds that he's eating up because the defensive line last year wasn't good. Even though Indomitian Sue played like an all pro, his salary demands makes the rest of the line, you know, kind of suffer. So you're able to go out and get a Robert Quinn. You're able to add some more depth behind him. 
And then the linebacker group is better because Raquan McMillan's healthy. That pushes Kiko Alonso back into his natural outside backer position. The secondary is balling right now with the addition of Mika Fitzpatrick, like you talked about earlier. Bobby McCain's transition to the outside cornerback role has been very good. The offensive line's better at all five spots this year. The receivers are deep. The running backs are deep. I just, I mean, I've, like I said, I've been bullish on this team all offseason long. I've got a lot of crap for saying it. I predicted 2-0. I predicted 3-0 to start the season off. And I, it's just all going the way I thought it would. They're not overpowering teams. They're not dominating teams. I thought they have thoroughly outplayed their first two opponents. But all things told, I think that this is a team, you go back to 2016 and mentioned how good they were that year, at least in, in terms of finding a way to win games. I think this team has that same makeup where they're, they're going, you know, the NFL is all about close games. And under this coaching staff, under this quarterback, under this current regime, this team has proven time and time again that they can win close games. So I think they're going to be right there in the hunt down towards December. And I, I think they get into the playoffs personally as one of the wild card teams. Okay. And that's, man, if we get Dolphins, I don't know. Like, it's just the Bills made the playoffs last year. Like, we have to remember that in the AFC just a year ago, the Bills qualified and it was atrocious and part of that was just because the chargers did this to themselves by their horrid start and it looks like they figured things out and mike williams is healthy and uh derwin james uh you're not gonna believe this is already a really good safety in the nfl who could have foreseen he would be a unstoppable monster in the back nine for uh the, the los right. angeles chargers right away who could have ever foreseen that and uh it turns out having joey bosa and melvin ingham on the edge is very nice to have and uh casey and everything else but um if we get like dolphins chiefs in the wild card game oof, love that because you know the chiefs are going to be in a shootout every game they have the worst events of football and um the dolphins may have one of the best events in football so we get that in a healthy Tannehill. I, I'm in. I, that's what I'm rooting for. Let's get like the Dolphins against like a team with a bad defense where it's like fun offense, bad defense, and then the Dolphins who are much more um, even keeled and just a lot more stable across the board, uh, just how all that works. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to bet on them to win the division because I think betting on anyone other than the Patriots until they don't is uh, right. pretty pretty bold and pretty silly at this point. But uh, if they get a wild card spot and they get the right team, like they get a, I mean, even a Jacksonville, we get the Florida Bowl in uh, the wild card game. Like, are we sure that they would not be fair against Jacksonville? I don't know. But would I like to see Ryan Tannehill and Adam Gase try and scheme uh, Kenny Stills open on Jalen Ramsey and how Jalen Ramsey would handle getting burned by Kenny Stills on a 75-yard bomb to kick off the first quarter of an <laughs> important playoff game? Yeah, I'm, I'm here for it. So either way, I'm excited that the Miami Dolphins look good. And I think they're one of the teams that the NFL is uh, better off when the Miami Dolphins are good and that they're a stable, competent organization that uh, are fun to watch because, you know what, they added the orange back because they went way too teal and white in the last yes. couple of years since this uniform change. And they reemphasized the orange, which I very much appreciated. And I don't think we can understate just how important that has been to this turnaround this year is just the re-emphasis uh, on uh, the orange in the uniform scheme because you just, you can't, it, it's just, it's undeniable. Like, it's just an important part of Miami Dolphins football. Yeah, they, they certainly wanted to get back to the kind of the, the tradition of the Miami Dolphins because a lot of younger fans don't realize this was once the, the proudest organization in the National Football League. And a big reason why I'm actually a fan of this team, you know, you're a kid, you're young, you're impressionable. You're, you're something of a bandwagon type of fan. You want to be a front runner. And I hopped on that train back in the nineties when I was just a kid. And, you know, I, I live in Washington state actually, and the Seahawks were awful. And I, I really was impressionable towards big time star players. And 
King Griffey Jr. and Dan Marino were my guys, and that's that's who I have rolled with my entire life. And uh, like you, you mentioned that, you know, I think that any variety in the league is going to be go- a good thing. I, I saw a tweet from, I think it was uh, Chris Fowler, the, the college football analyst, talking about how, you know, college football is on this track or is already there where it's becoming Cavs versus Warriors every single year. You know, Alabama, Clemson, obviously we have Georgia up there now and a couple other powerhouse programs. And I think that's bad for any sport. I think that the big-time villain, like maybe one of them is good, but when you have the same three or four teams, you know, the Patriots, the Steelers, the Broncos were one of those teams for a long time, it gets stale. It gets really old. So if we can get a new influx of talent, it's nice to see this Jaguars team playing well. You know, it's nice to have, I guess, the Bengals are playing pretty well right now. You mentioned the Chiefs. They haven't really had much in terms of their trophy case history. I, I'm all for it. Give me all the new teams. Give me a, a complete, you know, upside down NFL. I think everyone wins because of that. Okay. Um, do we see the orange uniforms back this year? The Ted Ginn, Chad Henney special. I don't think they have those in the plans because you're allowed the one mm. alternate and they love those throwbacks, the the stripes on the sleeves and the, the darker aqua, like you mentioned. They love those and they're actually going to use those for two home games this year. I think a division games with the Bills and Patriots. So I think no orange. Uh, that, that, you're, you're a fan? You're a fan of the orange? I, I, I love the orange. It's It's disgusting. They're awful, but they're orange <laughs> enough where I very much appreciate. And maybe it's just because I remember the Chad Hindi to Ted Ginn bomb Monday Night Football. Yeah, For whatever reason, that's just etched in my mind. It's your guilty pleasure that those orange uniforms, the, the creamsicle ones they wore on the color rush a few years ago. Oh my mm. God, those were terrible. They were terrible, but they were great. If you're being <laughs> honest with yourself, they're so bad, they're good. Um, I can respect that. There you go. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, this was great. I, I think uh, we hit everything. Uh, can you give me a win total and then we'll get out of here? Give me yes, a win. Sir. I know it's early. Give me a final win total. Oh, man, I've been on 10 and 6 since, uh, since the offseason started. So 10 and 6. All right. I'm right there with you. I like 10 and 6 for this team. There you go. You heard it here first. Travis Wingfield has been on this. The Dolphins are going 10 and 6. They're making the playoffs. And uh, Kenny Stills is going to burn Jalen Ramsey on the first play of the wild card game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Oh, Jacksonville. I love that. So there you love go. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Well, we can listen to Travis and we can read him on LockedOnDolphins.com and we can follow him on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Travis, thank you so much for the time and we'll talk in soon, sir. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. All right, on the line right now, rising NFL superstar writer Jason Butt of The Athletic Atlanta. Jason, good evening. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Chase? I'm good. How are things at the Athletic? So far, so good. Uh, really happy to to be a part of this uh, this growing company that, for somehow and some reason, it, it continues to expand. I don't necessarily know. I'm just happy to be along for the ride. All right. Is Mr. Schultz treating you well? Because he was in the podcast a couple months ago. Good guy, but uh, I want to ensure that he is not being too hard on you and that the relationship is working. <laughs> He's horrible. I can't stand a, a second uh, of him at, uh, ever, which I'm totally kidding. He's he's an awesome guy, and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can't be more thrilled to, to work with him. All right. So we are entering week three with the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I feel like we've already gone through both. Um, <laughs> we've got, kind of gone through the looking glass on both sides with mm-hmm. uh, week one. Steve Sarkeesian is who we thought he was last week. I mean, uh, last year. And then uh, they go four for four in the red zone in week two against the Panthers. And now, okay, maybe he's fine. 
And then you look at the latest DVOA rankings that came out this morning on Football Outsiders, and the Falcons are number 23 in offensive DVOA and number 23 in defensive DVOA. So they are painfully average, and I think that makes sense based on just the gigantic pendulum swings in uh, week one and week two. Is that is that fair? It's very fair. Uh, you look at what the offense did, or, or should I say couldn't do, against Philadelphia in week one on the road. Uh, you look at what they did against Carolina in week two, total opposite. You couldn't be any different than 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 what they were able to do. Uh, they only had, I think, four sustained drives against Philadelphia. Five trips to the red zone, one off of a turnover, could only score once. Against Carolina, they they were moving the ball at will at times and just just moving however they wanted to dictate the tempo and the pace and or, or whether whether they wanted to hurry run the two men in at the end of the first half whether they wanted to run their traditional offense uh, they they were able to move the ball against Carolina a traditionally strong defensive team and uh, so yeah I think it's you know given the small sample size we have right now very fair to say this is an average team kind of shrug your shoulders. I don't know what to make of it right now. The defensive side is a little clearer. I think the first game against Philadelphia was what a lot of us expected with, with the returning talent, with the leadership of Keanu Neal and Deion Jones. And then all of a sudden you take those two guys away from, from the puzzle and you're kind of looking at more games like the Carolina game where you just don't have that, that leadership presence that Mike linebacker uh, a fundamentally sound guy who's going to be able to make plays in coverage, be able to play the run very well. And a guy like Keanu Neal, who is such a matchup nightmare for, you know, at that, at that strong safety position who can play down in the box against the run can cover. And so uh, you take those two guys away two pro bowl defenders. And now you're looking at a lot more bend, but don't break. You're looking at a lot more uh, chances to give up plays. And that's why I think you saw the, I mean, I don't think I know that's why you saw the the big discrepancy from week one to week two on the defensive side of the football. Do you get the sense that Duke Riley is a little overwhelmed by being just thrown into the spotlight and just he did not have a good week two, uh, not good in coverage, and I feel like everybody's just going to remember what happened with the rookie DJ Moore on that big touchdown. Yeah. Like, is he... Uh, where do you think his head's at? Is the criticism leveled towards him fair? Like, is this just one of those things where, because it seems like all the players are saying the right things about him and trying to keep him in there because they need him now. Because mm-hmm. I believe, let me check my notes, the Falcons, yes, they have two linebackers that can play this weekend. I think that's where they're at right now with Nelson now being up in the mm-hmm. air and they've already converted a safety to linebacker. A uh, good story from Yale. Foy. Olukan, is that how you pronounce it? Olukan. Olukan. Olukin, yep. yeah. So he was a safety at Yale, and now he's a linebacker for the Falcons. So um, a lot of turnover there on that side of the ball. But um, first up, what do you uh, what do you make of the Duke Riley situation heading into Week Three? Yeah, it, he's definitely been thrust into a, a tough situation as, as a as a guy who you know the NFL these days. Uh, one thing that I'll say it's unfair, but it's a reality that you, know, you go back to, to ten twenty years ago. Uh, guys, draft picks, they, they were allowed to grow, mature into their roles. They, if they weren't, you know, these high, high, highly selected draft picks, you know, first, second round type guys, and uh, you can you can maybe group third round, which is where Duke Riley was selected. But um, he's only going into his second season, so I, I think there's still 
a bit of a learning curve there. Not everybody's going to pick up uh, on the, the schematics at the NFL level as quickly as others. And, um, and I think he's, he's obviously one of them. And the one thing about him is that the effort's there. He is trying really hard. He, he's doing all the things in practice that the coaches want to see, but he knows it. He sees it. He, he understands the criticism. I, I think to a degree he gets the criticism. Um, he may not like it, but I, I, he knows that when you don't finish plays. And, he, and after the game on, on Sunday, he, without being prompted, he brought up the DJ Moore play and said he has to finish the play. He said he was, and, and honestly, most players don't admit they they get fatigued. It was late in the game. He played a ton of snaps, probably more snaps than he was accustomed to because at Mike Linebacker, you really don't get the chance to come out. Uh, and so you know, he, he admitted he was fatigued and couldn't finish that play. And, you know, there, there's really no excuse. You've got in that position, you've got to finish the play. Dan Quinn described that DJ Moore play as a, a fender bender turned into a fatality. I thought that was pretty strong. You know, for, for <laughs> somebody like Dan Quinn, that was a pretty strong uh, yeah. description of uh, what that play turned out to be. And uh, so, I mean, the criticism's warranted. Uh, I also, he, he's, if the thing is, just from the, the being, being my first year on this beat and, getting to talk to a lot of these guys, he's actually one of the more engaging, uh, thoughtful uh, people on this roster. And so uh, you, you, he, he, he understands it is the point. I guess I'm really trying to stress is that he's not one of these guys that is sitting there wondering why he's getting all this criticism. He gets it. He understands it's a business. But at the same time, it's one thing to understand and get it and all that, but you do have to produce at a, at a certain point, he's very confident in himself. Uh, he believes he will be able to get to that point. At least he said as such. But uh, given the way the NFL is now, and with the the, the CBA and 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 uh, just those rosters in general are so much younger than they were a decade or two ago, a guy like Duke Riley has to start producing at a at a much earlier point than than before. And um, so yeah, sure he gets he's getting a lot of criticism and only his second season, two games into his second season, but uh that's just the reality of the business. So he's got to he's got to improve uh, a lot sooner than later, that's for sure. Well, it's been good for Vic Beasley, who has been uh absent the last two <laughs> weeks and uh it's definitely one of those nice things. So it's a good teammate move from Duke Riley to <laughs> Uh, take on this level of criticism because if he was actually playing above and beyond uh, what he should be in year two, uh, I think a lot of the eyeballs would be turned towards Vic Beasley uh, not doing relatively anything, either pressuring the quarterback, getting sacks, anything along those lines. It's uh, not a great start to Vic Beasley's uh, 2018 campaign, right? Yeah, uh, he's a guy that I think uh, spoiled everybody with 15 and a half sacks two years ago, and but now you're at a situation where you're wondering, okay, well, his rookie year was down, his third year was down, and in his third year, yeah, he had because of Duke Riley's early season, mid season injury, he had to step in and, and take on a lot more roles, um, whether it was playing linebacker, uh, dropping into coverage a little more. Still, um, the numbers, the the pressures aren't, aren't where they were when he was in his second season. Um, you know, it just seemed like the times he he was able to. Uh, get any kind of rush against Carolina he just was uh, a step or two uh, I don't want to say late but just a step or step or two uh, both not able to get there just it, it seemed like 
Cam was getting rid of the ball right right around the time where you would want him to, to get hit. And Vic Beasley, maybe two years ago, was able to, to land those hits, and he wasn't able to, um, you know, against against the Carolina and the Panthers and, and Cam Newton. And uh, you, you do wonder if, if this is what, – what kind of trend is going to, to form? Is he going to continue where he left off last season in, in this role, which – well, not, not to go off on a tangent here, but, you know, we were told that he was primarily going to be a pass rusher. But then you kind of look at that Carolina game. He was doing a lot of stuff. He was uh, dropping into coverage a little more than you would think. He was spying cam. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's one of those things where it's a different type of quarterback that, that they're playing. Yeah. So maybe it just happened to do with that. Maybe you'll see him tee off a little more. Uh, with Drew Brees coming up, but even Drew Brees, he's got that that lateral quickness in the pocket a little bit uh, more so than than a a big, strong, scrambling type that Cam is. But still, uh, you 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 really hope that a guy like Beasley can get back to where he was two years ago, especially considering uh, you know this is his uh, his fourth year, and he'll obviously have the fifth year option, and and then that second contract is going to be looming real soon. So. Uh, for his sake, you know, he, he's got to step it up or uh, his financial situation won't be nearly where a lot of people thought it was going to be when he had that big year the, the season the Falcons went to the Super Bowl. Do you think Thomas Dimitrov is already starting to think about acquiring a, a certain Seahawk at some point <laughs> in the next few weeks if they continue on this dumpster fire of a season? Um, and you're not going to believe this, Jason, but... Uh, a team that is utilizing Brian Schottenheimer as their offensive Ooh. coordinator in 2018 is it's not paying dividends in Seattle. So that's been the biggest shocker to me is that Brian Schottenheimer is not working out as an OC in 2018. So <laughs> yeah, who could have ever foreseen that coming? A beat yeah. you're very familiar with, right? The Grease yeah. Lambert, Brian Schottenheimer. Uh, I have to mention this on every podcast, I guess now, um, but it's it's one of my favorite favorite seasons. Being from Atlanta and from Georgia, that was a uh, it was it was crazy times. Yeah, that that 2015 year was one I'll never forget. Uh, the the fact I, I just remember when Brian Schottenheimer got the Seahawks off coordinator job. You know, it's one thing for him to go back and be a be a quarterbacks coach in the NFL, but when he got the when he got the, the offensive coordinator job, I, I just remember, I want to say, I can't remember if it was Jake Rowe or Seth Emerson or somebody, I, I just remember us talking about that and just going, what in the world? Like only only in football can you continue to get jobs like that after having season after season of disappointment. And uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, there, there's no surprise uh, on my end uh, that that. Seattle's off to this disastrous start on, on the offensive side of the ball. Now, as for, I assume you're alluding to uh, Earl Thomas. Uh, at, at Earl safety. Thomas? I mean, KJ Wright. <laughs> I mean, he's not even starting. Co-call uh, Bobby Wagner. See what it would take for uh, get somebody <laughs> like, like Frank Clark. Like, I would just be calling the Seahawks right just now. Just try to get everybody like, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like, what can you do right now for us? Because we need bodies. And yeah. uh, I know you love Trey Flowers as your corner of the future, who I, I thought would be really good in that system and everything else. You have uh, Griffin. You have mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, the other Griffin. But he's kind of taken over that outside role. So maybe you go after somebody like that and uh, just to add someone else. But I just wonder how many injuries it takes before – 
that uh, Thomas Dimitrov's just like, okay, Duke Riley cannot handle this workload. Um, we have to do something. Uh, Demonte Kazee is. Uh, I- I'm gonna call- keep calling him Demonte Kazee because once I found out it's not Kazee, the last name mm-hmm. pronunciation, I was very upset because Kazee is a fun word to say, and <laughs> I just feel like it's a it's a more star quality uh, pronunciation of his last name. So I'm going to keep going to Monte Kazi. I'm sorry, <laughs> Demonte. You're a preseason superstar. I still like you. I mean, outside of that hit on cam, which was, um, uh, bad to say the least and, uh, not a, not a great one and not a great look, but, uh, either way, it just seems like if they have, but then again, you look on the other side of the ball, Devonte Freeman out several weeks, yeah. uh, Andy Levitre now, gone but that was kind of expected based on how last season ended for him and this was always going to be a rocky situation so now you have offensive line stuff to worry about you have defensive line stuff to worry about linebacker stuff to worry about free safety strong safety like suddenly all these holes are popping up and that's part of the it's part of the game that a lot of teams deal with this a lot of teams deal with the injury bug that's why depth is so critical but like i I do wonder if thomas dimitrov has to kind of go into the war chest uh, sooner rather than later and make some sort of move. Yeah, I, I don't think they're, they're going to do that anytime. Well, I'd say anytime in the near future, and then they could have four more injuries happen against New Orleans for all we know. You know, it's, it's almost like you look back at uh, Dan Quinn's uh, previous three seasons, and they just, for whatever reason, never had the, the I mean, I Desmond Trufant, had a season-ending injury, but they just didn't have a, a just a rash of injuries that that all seemed to pile up. Serious injuries that that kind of just one after the other, like they are experiencing right now. So it's almost it was almost like they were due for this kind of season that they were due for uh, just just to have one bad break after the other, and that's what they're experiencing right now. Um, I know for a fact that at, at safety. Unless something happens to, uh, since I'm on your podcast, I'll call him Kazee. But uh, mm, thank so. <laughs> you very much. You're allowed back anytime. You've gotten a lifelong uh, lifelong opportunity now. All right, that's that's perfect. Yeah. As long as they have him uh, and Ricardo Allen healthy, they're not going to do anything at safety. Yeah. Um, Which makes I, sense, right? Yeah, because I mean, that, you know, there, there's one particular starting caliber safety on the market right now. Mm. Hmm, I wonder yeah. who it well, could I mean, be. They could confirm a linebacker. They could uh, <laughs> keep converting all these guys. Just follow the Yale guy route. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know. It's that easy, as everybody knows. It's that easy for right. us. But, um, you know, and honestly, if uh, if Duke Riley, if, if they if they decide that he's not the that he's not a, a, a practical fill-in for, for games to come uh, at Mike Linebacker, they are cross-training Foyer, the aforementioned Yale safety, they are cross training him at um you know at Mike linebacker also so that could be an option moving forward and uh, you obviously you would you would sacrifice uh, a little bit of inexper- or, or inexperience for Yale brains uh, and then of course with uh mm. with with Duke Riley you've got uh, just a ton of athleticism but somebody who has has not necessarily picked up the the everything on defense uh Maybe as quickly as as others would have, and so you know that's an option there. I think that that they um, they would look into, and then of course the defensive line was supposed to be the uh, that that's that's what I, I honestly wonder what they're going to do this weekend because the, the first thing that stands out to me is if Pat McKinley and Derek Shelby can't play, you're likely having to go Jack Crawford at defensive end. 
you may have to make uh, Justin Zimmer active. Uh, you know, he's okay. never played in, in, in a sure. game. If that's a real person, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> well, that's the point. Is that it, you're just sitting there going, "What in the world are they going to do?" Stephen Means, the guy they signed off the street uh, a week or two ago, whenever it was, uh, right, right when uh, you know Neil and uh, and Jones were were uh, injured, and um, so yeah, so they're calling Dwight Freeney this week. Is what you're saying. <laughs> Dwight Freeney's coming back. Worse, worse ideas have uh, been have, have okay. been thought not, of. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out Dwight Freeney getting like a three pressures in a sack on a random week for the Falcons if they called him. I wouldn't rule that out. <laughs> Anything's possible. Yeah. De- Elvis Dumerville, he retired a couple weeks ago, right? Bring him back. Let's <laughs> get the gang back together. Let's just find all the vets. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, we were joking today, uh, you know, when, when are they going to have Marquand Manuel just suit up and be a player coach at this yeah. point? Well, it's good they promoted the DB coach to defensive coordinator because that is their area of strength now because the defensive <laughs> line sucks, the linebacking core is just gone, and then uh, the, the strength, I mean, Ricardo Allen was huge for them. He had a great pick, a lot of pass breakups. He's he Paying him was a uh, very smart, shrewd decision by the Falcons this summer. Uh, he has earned his money, and he is a valuable asset in the development of Kazee, and uh, I love that I'm going to keep this going. And then you still have <laughs> Trufant, Alford, and all these guys. Guys. So I mean, they and obviously you still have um, a new guy you're developing in Isaiah Oliver. So um, and Brian Poole, one of the mm-hmm. best nickel corners in football. So I mean, they their strength now is kind of like what happened to the Seahawks a couple years ago when uh, Cliff Averill started dealing with his injury stuff and um, they got beat up on the defensive line and the linebacking core. And then they kind of were like, oh, we don't have the pass rush that we used to, but we still have Sherman, Thomas, Chancellor. Right. friends in the back so our like we may not be the same kind of defense in legion of boom and that like we can get the same kind of pressure up front but we can we still have a good back four that we can rely on to get stops and they're going to be yeah sure they'll be tested more but we at least have the firepower back there to make it all work but if you don't have the secondary and no pass rush you have like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the Kansas City Chiefs right now <laughs> and uh, nobody <laughs> yeah. wants that uh but you know I mean it's it's good that they have a good secondary I guess that's what I'm saying it's the Falcons are very fortunate to have the secondary that they have in Marco Manuel running that defense because uh they would be in bad bad doo-doo if uh they did not have a Ricardo Allen back there yeah and uh and, that, and that's the thing they, they they entered the year as maybe the most balanced the most balanced defense, I would like to say, just in terms of every position group, and then you just pluck away these guys left and right, and uh, you can absorb the kneel injury a little bit just because you had a, a quality yeah. third safety, but and you still got, and in, in the worst case scenario, you can move Brian Poole to safety, maybe move Alford to nickel, and and you know get. Accelerate, try, try your best to accelerate Isaiah Oliver's development and play him outside outside corner, as you know the second round pick uh, from Colorado. But yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything like this. I've, uh, you know, I'm I'm about a decade into this business, uh, and so I've, I've covered teams that have dealt with injuries. Uh, I haven't seen anything like this in such a short period of time, in two weeks, and you're just talking about, uh, you know, you got two guys on on uh, IR, you know, one. Is, is scheduled or likely to come back at this time, but still two guys on a, on an IR and then of course, Devonte Freeman's out for a, a little while and on the offensive side and, and you're just, and 
now you've got the, the guys banged up on the D line and it's all, it's almost like, okay, who's next? Who's getting hurt this week? It's bound to happen at this point. I mean, if it's Jake Matthews, it's, I, I think about like, I think he might be the most vital piece of the puzzle right now. Like if he goes down, Oh my God. Like yeah. I just, I mean, Tevin Coleman was shifty and he was doing some fun stuff against Carolina and he was a lot better than, uh, I think most people expected, which is good because, um, maybe they can trade him for some assets at the, <laughs> before the trade deadline and stuff. Maybe that's something because you got to get Edo Smith some carries and, uh, you're not going to pay Tevin Coleman anyway. So maybe that's the, maybe that's the ticket is just finding a way to, you know, call Tampa Bay up, uh, Vinny Curry, uh, can we get Vinny <laughs> Curry for, uh, Tevin Coleman, you get your Michael Turner because uh, the Bucks are starting Peyton Barber at running yep. back, who is a not a good running back in today's NFL, and uh, it's it's not going to work long term. I don't believe in the Peyton Barber Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, combination in uh, 2018, but you know who am I to suggest such a thing cannot be a reality? But um, yeah, like I, I guess the last thing I want to touch on with the Falcons, if we can move on, is I just the Devontae Freeman stuff, man. I don't mm-hmm. think it matters, which is always like part of the reason that I was always kind of eh about extending him anyway is just you can find guys like Devontae Freeman all the time. He's not like a Le'Veon Bell or any of those kind of players where it's just, yeah, I'm okay with paying him. That's fine. Whatever. Um, But it felt like this foregone conclusion that like, yeah, he was just a, he's a good back and it's nice to have him and the Falcons um, utilized him well. He fit the system, all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, now we're, He's missed a lot of games, and it's getting murkier and murkier. What do you make of Devontae Freeman's future in Atlanta, and do you think this is a guy that uh, the Falcons are happy with and that uh, they still see as a long-term guy for them? They made the investment, and so if they were to cut him after this season, that's $9 million in dead cap on their books next year. So do they do that? Do they just say, you know what? We like Tevin Coleman. We're going to extend him and give him that money and just have nine million sitting there. Or do they let Tevin Coleman walk? Do they? You mentioned uh, trying to trade Tevin Coleman at the trade trade deadline. Well, Tevin Coleman's having games like he did against Carolina. Edo Smith continues to look the way he did against Carolina, which obviously that's such a small sample size. You don't really want to hypothesize just based on one game. But then that scenario is that flipped with with Devontae Freeman, you try to unload his contract. Mm. Yeah. I, I think, I think the Falcons are, uh, could find themselves. If, if, if Devontae Freeman's knee goes toward that four week span, maybe he doesn't. And he's not himself. Uh, you just wonder, uh, I mean, it, it is, it's tough. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm with you in that. It is really tough to give a running back the kind of deal that he got on a second contract. And just because you find these guys that come, come through the through NFL drafts, uh, you know, year after year, where you can get a guy like, I mean, shoot, when the Redskins had uh, Alfred Morris as a rookie, yeah. and, and you find these guys that can come out, come in and turn out a couple of good seasons, and then maybe you move on, and, and, and unless you're, like like you said, unless you're a Le'Veon Bell type, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, um, David Johnson, as long as Bruce Arians is coaching you, uh, that, you know, those are the guys you you tend to to reward and want to stick around. They're not they're they're not the norm, right? Exactly, and and so but the thing is, Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman as a tandem when they're healthy, they work so well because they're they're different styles, and, and you can mm-hmm. scheme so well against opponents with both of them available. But 
after this year, you're not going to have both of them available. And so, it, it, you know, Freeman they'll was the one. Somebody else, they'll drive somebody in the fifth round. They'll they'll yeah. find somebody. Like that's the thing is you'll always find somebody. But unless you're like the Bucks, you can have th- two to three guys, and you'll be okay. Like you need multiple guys. Like mm-hmm. the Jags, even though they drafted Leonard Fournette early on in the top ten a couple years ago, they still have uh, TJ Yeldon. They still have other guys that they brought in. And I mean the yeah. Jets with Bilal Powell and uh, Isaiah Crowell, a guy that I know you're also very familiar with. <laughs> Uh, One guy I can't believe like we didn't that. say. Like, I, I can't believe I've mentioned all those running backs and didn't throw in Todd Gurley, just you know the, mm. the best back in the league who who uh, probably <laughs> deserves you know all the money in the world uh, for for what he's been able to do so far. But uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. Real if you'd quick. like to apologize to Georgia fans, real quick, that would that would work. I, I, I can <laughs> yeah. imagine they were very upset about that. I know they're sitting there going, "What is this guy talking about?" I'm not even mentioning Gurley. I totally understand. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I actually got in a uh, sports conversation with my dad. This is a quick sidebar with Todd Gurley. Is and I want your opinion on this because you're very well versed in both worlds. Is uh, I, I suggested that Todd Gurley is the best uh, Georgia back of all time if you include both college and NFL stuff. Even though he still got many more years to mm-hmm. uh, play, is it fair to say Todd Gurley is the best uh, Georgia back of all time already? Man. I think it's fair. I, I actually know some. I'm not going to name him because this is a private conversation with a fellow. It's another reporter that I know who mm. believes wholeheartedly that Todd Gurley is the best back in Georgia history. But you, it's almost like if you even there try to go. make that, if you try to make that argument, though, I'm not going to make that argument. They get sensitive. People Ooh, get very sensitive. About very, that. very sensitive. Very. And, and it's very weird. Is yeah. it nostalgia? Is that all it is? The member berries are very strong. I, I that, think so. Uh, <laughs> but the, the thing is, Herschel okay. Herschel was the kind of the first of that kind of running back, and yeah. and he was so dominant in college that he probably when you just you know would Herschel have those kind of seasons now? I mean, I'm not going to say yes or no, but I think that's a fair debate. I, th- I think you could say, mm-hmm. okay, well, different era different styles a lot just just athletes are so much i mean they're they're training at such a younger age now and they're getting specialized training and all this stuff that um yeah all this stuff that better nutrition and everything that that uh you know they didn't have back then and so but i think a lot of it is you also just think about everything that he does like todd Gurley's a he could return kicks every game if he wanted to if they wanted to not protect him he can catch the ball better than just about any running back he can run the ball like he can go outside yeah herschel was that guy too though herschel herschel did all he was he was that he was that guy before everybody that's that's the thing is that he was he i mean he had 5200 yards in three years at georgia which is Mm -hmm. just ridiculous and he could also catch passes. He, he, you know, and then of course in the NFL, he was a great return man. Um, but, but I mean, mm. Todd Gurley, he's he's a once in a lifetime back, and what he did. I get their opinion on it. What do you think their opinion is? If you ask them both, if they had to answer honestly, if they thought one of the other was better, do you I would, think they both I, say I, themselves? I would think I would think Todd would say Herschel, and I think Herschel okay. would say Herschel. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting and not at all surprising. <laughs> it's a different era, man. The the the, the, yeah. the old the old guys, man. You don't you just you can't you can't have that debate with with a certain once you no. get to a certain age, nobody they won't even listen. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the T. Martin and uh, Peyton Manning argument. If you really want to piss <laughs> off a Tennessee fan, point out yeah. the fact that Tennessee yeah. didn't win until T. Martin took over. Right. 
Although I think and that's, that's a Martin, little more. That's all we're saying is T. Martin is a better all-time college quarterback yeah. than Peyton Manning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure. National, it's kind of like See, when, yeah. when, I was, when I was a little kid and, and I, I didn't, you know, and I, I just held grudges against athletes for no reason. It was, uh, well, mm. Dan Marino's not that good. He never won a Super Bowl. You know, that was, yeah. it's kind of like that. Facts only. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then you get older and you realize um, how stupid younger you was. <laughs> I'm still figuring all that out right now. Um, and you know what? I'm still over here trying to push the the point that Todd Gurley is probably the best quarterback of all time. So maybe I still have a lot to learn. But um, yeah. Uh, so the Patriots this week. I want to touch yeah. on this a little bit because they traded for Josh Gordon, and it's a conditional fifth round pick. And Josh Gordon. Um, I don't even think a lot of people realize that he played in Week One. And it's like, oh, we haven't seen Josh Gordon for like he scored a touchdown. It right. was a pretty crazy catch on the right hand side. His only catch was a His touchdown. Only, yeah. He still is yeah, and I mean, he is still someone that like when he's on the field, like he is just he adds a dimension that just not many receivers can do. And I mm-hmm. mean, this is a different league where everything's underneath. But you see the problems with that in some capacity, even with the grades like Tom Brady, where he has no passes of 20 yards or more downfield to a receiver yet. You can watch that Jaguars game and you're like, oh, Chris Hogan can't get open. Cordero Patterson can't do this. And like without Julian Edelman to help out, I mean, Gronk's really his only deep threat. Mm -hmm. And that's not good. And they're trying to find a way around that. And Josh Gordon um a lot's been said about like everybody hopes he's they wish him the best and all that but like we saw him in week one he was good and i understand why the browns want to move on too because i can understand just kind of dealing with the off and on forever like i get that idea of like we never know if we're gonna fully get the best of josh gordon for like 16 games and i can understand when to move on now fifth round value for someone as good as josh gordon probably not the best i would not I think they could have gotten better depending on um, what other teams were getting involved. But, I mean, Philly obviously has some options. Like if Washington or other teams like that wanted to get involved, you would think that someone else would have been able to present a better offer. But maybe there are real concerns. Maybe Josh Gordon doesn't play in a significant role for the Pats. But it is fascinating that the Pats did something like this because it does not feel like something they would do heading into week three where he's having to learn a whole new scheme going from Hugh Jackson to Bill Belichick, which seems like a pretty big deal for Josh Gordon's career. I feel like it's going to be a little bit different culture wise um, from Cleveland to uh, new England, but I do think it's fascinating and you don't see many of these kind of deals, especially out of uh, the Bill Belichick uh, path, right? Yeah. And this has just, being the most Cleveland move of all time written all over it where um, only because it's Cleveland getting rid of Josh Gordon that Josh Gordon's going to still somehow now go for like 1100 yards and eight touchdowns and the, the remaining games this year uh, maybe get voted to a pro bowl just, just it just it just screams this is so Cleveland like this is this is something that would happen to Cleveland, much like having two chances to be two and zero and being oh one and one instead, uh, like going zero and sixteen last year. Uh, j- just, uh, just something about that franchise that they never, they, they they can never get the basic stuff right, and they're always turning over their roster. They're always freaking out. They can never, they they don't, they don't try to build like a, a normal franchise would build. Um. You know, if if this was a move that was made in the off season, much like when Oakland dealt Randy Moss to um, to the Patriots, 
You know, I, right. I would I, I would be all in saying, oh my gosh, Josh Gordon's going to go bananas this year and have uh, you know a cr- crazy successful run while he's in his prime and while Bill Belichick and company can keep him, uh, you know, on the wagon and out of trouble. But given that it's a midseason move, I, I there, there will be a learning curve. I I think I think it might take a couple games, but yeah, I, I'm I'm with the, the Patriots haven't had a guy of this caliber on the outside probably since Randy Moss and. Um, and then once you get Edelman back and you've got Chris Hogan and, and you, you've kind of got all these other pieces that they, they can work underneath with and they can move the chains with and, and Dink and Duncan and so forth. But then they finally add a guy who can stretch the field the way that Josh Gordon can. And as long as they can keep him on the straight and narrow and, and, uh, and, and, and have him behaving himself off the field, then it's a home run for New England, especially for the value, as you said. Uh, I, I, the thing that gets me is that Cleveland, they they essentially put out there they're going to get rid of him. And the second they did that, before trading him, they killed what they could have gotten in return for him. Uh, at that point, yep. it's like, oh, you're going to cut him anyway? Well, here's a fifth rounder, a conditional fifth rounder at that. Uh, I mean, if, if they were truly unhappy with him, um, at he least he was late a, or something on Saturday. Like, was yeah. that all it was? He was late? I mean, no, it, he it, it was uh, just. Uh, Allegedly, he, uh, he yeah, he had, he, had, he had the photo. He had the photo shoot that he uh-huh. allegedly hurt his hamstring in, and and uh, uh, okay, they just thought he was being disingenuous, apparently, and it's all sorts of stuff. And I think the but team tried stuff to put out where it was like they were going to cut yeah. him or something, right? Like if they couldn't find a taker, they were going to cut him. I'm like, what? What? Why are you releasing all leverage? Like, yeah. what are you doing here? They right. just destroyed any leverage they had because. Like you said, he's still just a when he's on the field, he is just an incredible, incredible talent. And if the Pats are able to keep him on the straight and narrow, like this is just this is what gets them back on track. But I also just I think what's not being talked about enough is that this feels like Belichick is actually nervous about this Pats team, right? Yeah, it, he would not do something like this if he wasn't really concerned about their chances this year. Like, he's not bringing Josh Gordon into this locker room if he's not like, oh, we might be in serious trouble here. Right. I mean, if they they didn't have, like you said, Gronk's the only guy that they had that that could seriously stretch the field. Uh, you know, Malcolm Mitchell, that that didn't work out with the injuries. Uh, they don't They don't have any true outside threats right now. And so you, if you're New England, you almost have to, to take a chance here, you know. I think Philadelphia was was rumored in there with with, with all of their uh, uh, injuries. You know, Mike Wallace going down uh, last week. Uh, you know, so so they obviously they went and they they trying to kick the tread on some old tires with with Jordan Matthews, and I think they were working Best out Jeremy Macklin, of, uh, Carson and, Wentz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if it, New, New England. They they had to do this, and uh, it's uh, and I don't I you know I don't know I I do feel like like I said I think it's the it would it would be the most Cleveland thing ever for Josh Gordon to just light up the stat sheet week in week out from here on out and uh, and and kind of be the the shade of his old self that he was uh, you know in in that one year that that you know he he blew up the NFL um, now will he I I don't know I mean I I think that I it'll, hope so. I mean, I do too. I think it would be really exciting, and it would give me another reason to laugh at Cleveland. But mm-hmm. 
but uh, which but I'm see, never I'm a any... little bit mixed about this because I am a gigantic Baker Mayfield person, and I really want him to succeed. But at the same time, uh, I think it's just kind of moving on. If Josh Gordon's ever going to figure it out in the NFL, like I, it feels like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and being in that uh, locker room, being in that system is the right place for him. If he's not going to work out there, it's just never going to happen. So yeah. it's, it, it might be a win-win, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I still think they botched this entire process. And uh, suddenly that uh, wide receiver group outside of Jarvis Landry is starting to look a little bit more like uh, the Buffalo Bills receiving <laughs> options. Yeah, but that's what we've come to know in Cleveland is is that that's the that's the best example of of Cleveland football is what you're seeing right now is just letting your best receiver go I mean yeah like you had the on and off again all that stuff um but for for this to be the final straw just just you're just kind of like really okay well fine move on whatever just give them to the, give, give them give them to Darth Belichick. You know, you're gonna give them the right. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. That's the part that's just like you're sitting there going, "You got to be kidding me." Yeah, I will say I would be more concerned if he had gotten traded to like the Saints. Like if Sean Payton was able to get his hands on Josh yeah. Payton and Drew Brees with Payton and. Uh, I mean, Michael Thomas is still just a freak of nature, and then Ingram back in a couple weeks, and Alvin Kamara the backfield. I think Falcons fans should be happy that Saints weren't able to uh, get on that action because Josh Gordon on the outside doing the Kenny Still stuff for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty pretty nasty. But you know, uh, that, that it goes back to your point. You know, the Patriots felt they had to make this move, obviously, whereas yeah. a team like the Saints doesn't need to because they're you know they got plenty of options. They're happy with where they're at, and uh, that does yeah. say a lot. It says a lot about Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels, and uh, and Tom Brady. And that, okay, yeah, let's let's bring this guy in. Who there is a risk, but we we need him. You know, it's like we need this kind of player right now. And we're willing to put up with the risk. I think that says a lot, uh, considering what we know historically about the Patriots franchise. Another thing, and this is a good transition to another thing I want to ask you about, is the Steelers. Is this is becoming a, a more like the boiling point has been reached? Like the Le'Veon Bell stuff is really awkward. It's really weird. Now we're getting takes of like, have we reached the point of no return of <laughs> Le'Veon Bell's future? And then it's like, no, we're gonna forget about this if he's really good and he'll sign with somebody else. Someone's gonna sign him when you're right. like this. All goes back to like if he's still a good football player and he can still catch balls out of the backfield and he can still just change games and require all kinds of attention from opposing defenses then he's going to play he's going to get paid and he's going to be really good um once he goes down the adrian peterson route where it's like it doesn't match up anymore then yeah sure then we'll be past the point around no return but my whole thing with Le'Veon bell has been you know what this is we we joke about this every year is that you can find these running backs wherever and he wants to be paid like a receiver and i mean his franchise tender is nice like it's not like he's being underpaid at that point but he's also someone that I think is being advised that like, look, you know, this window to earn is very short. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think Le'Veon Bell really cares what uh, Sam and Omaha, Nebraska thinks of him <laughs> as a team player. Right. Because 20 years from now, he, he's out of the league. He's gone. Like he's just another guy and he's going to have to provide and he's going to have to figure things out and he needs to set himself up for life because 
their shelf life is extraordinarily short. And I mean, that's the case for most NFL players, but especially running backs. So like, this should be the thing like Todd Gurley, maybe this is what happens with him after his next contract. Like you never know. And I don't, I think he's handled it probably worse than other guys in a lot of ways. But at the same time, like, I mean, I, I get it. And I wonder if this leads to like um, an NFL PA and uh, NFL uh, dispute where it's like, we can't, are we just going to go down this road every year with running backs where they're right. like all the top 10 ones are just going to be like, Nope, we know that you're <laughs> going to DeMarco Murray us and we're not playing because James Connor, that first week, 31 carries, 10 receptions. Le'Veon yeah. Bell is like, see, they are going to overload me. And you saw Ben Roethlisberger's been playing the first two weeks. This past week, missing a bunch of easy balls. He sailed one over a wide-open James Washington at one point. Like, Ben Roethlisberger, not looking great. And if Ben Roethlisberger's not looking great, guess who they're turning to? Le'Veon Bell, we need you to carry us to 10 wins and back to the playoffs. So I, I think it's probably uh, not the best team move. But, I mean, ultimately, he knows these franchises and the Steelers are not going to care about him 20 years from now and he is going to do everything he can to maximize his window of opportunity similar to what Julio Jones did by the way in Atlanta Mm -hmm. there were a lot of hot takes this summer on Julio and oh my god he's working out with T.O. who could forget that week of content of right and don't want him around future Hall of Famer now Hall of Famer Terrell Owens wouldn't want that um (laughs) Oh my God. I I was so over that, the takes and uh, there's a certain person that I engaged with and I was like, do you you really not get it? It's very basic. It's very basic. He's out of guaranteed money. He just wants to get more guaranteed money. He knows that if he gets injured, like he's in serious hot water. He's like, people I feel like don't realize how long Julio Jones has actually been in the NFL. Like, I remember when I first told my mom, I'm like, no, he's in year what? And she's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, he's been around a long time now. It's, he's sneaky old. Like it's, uh. We're nearing the end of Prime Julio. It was, uh, and, uh, what, 2011? Anyway. Was that, was that yeah. when he was drafted? I think 2011? Isn't this year eight? Yeah. I want to say this is year eight for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's nearing the end of his prime and the uh, NFL window and earning potential and all that kind of stuff. Right. He's got I, one more I contract. Really understood. Yeah, he's got one more contract. And, and so, yeah, he's, exactly. he's going to try to collect all the, all the guaranteed money he can. And he's a guy that, uh, isn't going to play into his 30s. Yeah, I think early 30s, yeah. he's going to hang it up. But I do want to go back okay. to, 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 to Le'Veon Bell. Uh, right, sorry. I went on a tangent with Julio <laughs> Jones. I have n- I didn't get an opportunity during the summer to really rant about the Julio yeah. Jones stuff, so I, I needed to get that out of my system. I hear you. That's totally understandable. I get it. But uh, but, but with, with Le'Veon... Uh, the thing with me, assuming his offensive linemen, and there were three of them that, that threw him under the bus, assuming they're... Basically the whole offensive line at this point. I think they all threw him under the bus. Right. <laughs> assuming yeah. they're correct in, in what he told them, and I, I'm going to take their word uh, as their word, uh, Le'Veon Bell, that, that's, that was the worst part of, of, of how he handled this whole thing, was by telling them he was going to report, giving everybody a yeah. false sense of hope, and then not reporting. Um. That, you know, if if he knew all along he was never going to report, like, just don't say anything. Or tell them, hey, look, I, I got to do, do what's good for me. I mean, and, and here's yeah. the thing. You look at all of these teams around the league who have come to their senses and they're not they're not taking this old school approach and, and uh, just loading up carries and touches on one running back. I mean, you look at the Falcons. We, we talked earlier tonight about, Two two backs. They got you know they they they, they want to run with a two back system. 
Um, very few teams are going with that one back approach. The Saints have mm-hmm. uh, seem to be the trendsetter and and running two to three backs, uh, you know, through a game. Um, much to the chagrin of fantasy owners, uh, you know, try, trying to get one of those guys. Although Alvin Kamara seems to be the be a finally a Saints running back you can trust. But uh, teams teams around the NFL, they they all have. Uh, I shouldn't say all. I mean, there's a few here and there. But but even but even the Chiefs, I'd I'd have to go back and look. Kareem Hunt, it doesn't. You know, as a rookie, they they gave him a lot of touches. But 400, I gave Le- the Steelers gave Le'Veon Bell 400 touches last year. It, mm-hmm. He, if they're going to do that to their running backs, then. Then yeah, especially if they're producing at the rate Le'Veon Bell's producing at, then absolutely he should be paid like a receiver. I, I think the 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 market for his value to his team for what he is asked to do far exceeds any player at his position in the NFL, and the, and the Steelers want to take advantage of it. And then, like you said, you look at what James Conner was then asked to do. No, they're they're looking to just run their guys into the ground. They're they're one guy. That's their style. That's their system. That's what Mike Tomlin, for whatever reason, wants to do. And you can only make that work for so long. Um, well, yeah. thankfully, everything else is going smoothly in Pittsburgh. Like in oh yeah, Brown of course, yeah, is having very normal <laughs> weeks online and in person interviews. Um, that's going really well. Uh, you know, Ben Roethlisberger playing at an elite level. Uh, weird things about their new offensive coordinator post Todd Haley. Like mm-hmm. everything's coming up great in uh, Pittsburgh right now. How about Pittsburgh? They, they've been for so long. They've been the model of of consistency and quote unquote doing things the right way. They're my Super Bowl pick this year. Oh man, they've just turned into a dumpster fire right now. Uh, just out of control. They've lost control. Uh, for as good as Mike Tomlin's been for for that for that team, you just wonder. You know at at now, I'm not advocating for anybody's firing, but you know it's just a hypothetical scenario. It's like, well, Andy Reid only had so many years in Philadelphia, and if Mike Tomlin can't turn this around and gain control of his team and uh, get them winning and get them uh, excited, whether it's with Le'Veon Bell, whether it's without him, whether Antonio Brown can can get away from creating uh, external distractions for his team, then uh, you you want. I guess the point is you wonder if Mike Tomlin can corral all this and fix all of this and get them, you know, going back in the right direction that we've all seen them go for so many years. It's it's just amazing to see that franchise of all the franchises, that particular franchise, uh, just, 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 just go up in flames in the last two months. It seems, uh, it's been a, I can't think of the last time I saw the, the Steelers in such disarray as they're in right now. This is why I think what's going on in Los Angeles is so fascinating. I think we all overthought the Rams stuff mm-hmm. with all the personalities they brought in, at least for year one, in that, like, yeah, we made the dream team jokes and all that kind of stuff, but, like, they're going to be really good in year one. Now, can they keep this group of Aaron Donald, Nadamkin Sue, Marcus Peters, Aqib Talib, Todd Gurley, all these guys happy for the next couple of years or does it spiral out of control similar to what happens in Pittsburgh where it's like, it's great to have superstars uh, more at 11 there. Um, but it comes at a price when everybody has to get paid and the salary cap stuff gets awkward and mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody wants to eat and it's going to get weird because they paid Aaron Donald. They paid Todd Gurley and guess what? Guess who's coming up soon? Jared Goff. Mm-hmm. Are you going to pay Jared Goff? Got to pay your quarterback. Um, <laughs> Got to pay exactly. him. Exactly. So, 
<laughs> um, so when that happens, it's going to get weird. And maybe they implode after a couple of years, but if they get their Super Bowl win, then it's fine. I don't think they care if it implodes. Right. But the Steelers, I mean, it's just when you have this many guys like Antonio Brown, the best wide receiver in the NFL, then you have the best running back in the NFL. You have a future Hall of Famer who's won multiple rings. You have just guys up and down the list that just are like, oh my God, they finally figured out their offensive line. Like everything made sense. They have superstars across the board, but um, this is also the other side of the coin where it's like, yeah, it's great having these guys, but you never know when it implodes like this. And uh, um, it's, it sucks, but I, I'm still not, I'm not out. I think they could still kind of get out of this and finagle their way out of this, but um, it's also a reminder that they did not operate like the Cleveland Browns really like, Oh, well there's some animosity here and we've hit a fork in the road. So let's move on from this guy, Corey Coleman, Josh Gordon. I understand like this is not the <laughs> exact same thing, but like they're not just going to trade Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell. Cause they're not happy. They're going to try and work this out. Right. They understand uh, we have to win now because Ben Roethlisberger might be gone after this year and we have to uh, do what we can to win football games and trading them and eating a bunch of dead money is uh, not great. So we're not going to trade one of our five best players midseason. Right. And that that is the difference between them and Cleveland. <laughs> Absolutely. Cleveland will overhaul its whole They're roster. banking on their infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, uh, I, I think I really I think they'll they'll bounce they'll bounce back. I know Roethlisberger hasn't gotten off to the to the a great start. I think their offensive line is, is good enough to keep. My th- I, I say that, but then again, I, I keep looking at the defense, and and the defense has not played well at all to start the season. Um, granted, a lot of that had to do with which is probably not their fault. Losing Ryan Shazier, and right? He just did not have anybody to take right. over for him, and this is a totally different defense without him. And that I right. like it sucks for them because yeah. there's nothing you can really do there, and he was that damn good. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, but uh, you know, as long as the defense, as long as you're asking the Steelers' offense to outscore opponents, uh, I, I you just don't you don't see that ending well. You really don't. Yeah. Uh, I think I saw. Stats. Well, thankfully the AFC is a dumpster fire, so maybe they can. Maybe there's always a chance. I guess always a chance. Yeah, but you were about to say something. You saw what did you see? Yeah, there was some stat. Now I'm going to butcher it. Now that I'm on this, uh, I'm on your podcast. But it was something mm-hmm. like the Steelers being at home, scoring 37 points. It's something like over 300 games in the NFL that. See, I'm going to butcher this stat. It was, it was something basically the Steelers are the first team to to lose having scored 37 points at home against, uh, I don't know, a divisional opponent. Not, I mean, a conference opponent or some, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I can't remember. It was, they were the first to, to lose despite having some sort of crazy offensive output. It might have been total yards and 37 points. Maybe that's what it was. It was something astounding mm-hmm. that I was just like, oh, my gosh, it, and they were the first out of like 350 plus teams in, in NFL history to, uh, to to do this. And um, but uh, yeah, that's where, that's where the Steelers are at right now. Where you know, obviously, without Le'Veon Bell, they're they're still able to score, and a lot of that's yep. the system, offensive line. As as uh, inaccurate as Roethlisberger has been at times, he's still got weapons around him. Uh, you know, Jesse James had a huge game. Uh, against Kansas City. Kansas City also happens to have a terrible defense. 
Now that's that's mm-hmm. kind of a, a mirror image where it just just so happens to be that Kansas City's two and zero right now, uh, with uh, just lighting it up with with uh, Mahomes and and Kareem Hunt and and Tyree Kill and, and Sammy Watkins and all those guys, and then they can't cover anybody to save save themselves. So, uh, you, Pittsburgh's defense they they got to get it together. If not, it'll be a long season. But you you have to history history does say that Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh will rally. Pittsburgh will be a formidable opponent by at some point this year, and uh, perhaps that happens. Uh, you know, I honestly can't say, but it's just just in the, in the in the realm of where we are right now. It sure is crazy to to see the Steelers uh, that 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 steady franchise just uh, just crumbling. Uh, you know, it, it's crazy. Well, we'll see. We'll see if they can pick themselves up after after this horrid start. Well, they're my Super Bowl team, so they have to. <laughs> they have um, to, yeah. Mike Tomlin, I know you're listening. I need you to get it together. Le'Veon Bell, you need to get back on the field. I need, uh, I need some, I need some stuff. Bobby Wagner, go finish out the season in Pittsburgh. That's what I want. <laughs> um, there you go. That's how the NFL works. Uh, Jason, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, what can we look out from you? Uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday. What can we look out for you on theAthletic.com? Yeah, uh, the rest of the week. Uh, let's see. I'll have um, oh, I'll have an Alex Mack feature tomorrow on Thursday, and okay. then Friday, Friday's my uh, my mailbag. Uh, answer all our subscribers. So yeah, if you if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe to the Athletic, and then you can contribute to the mailbag, and I can answer any and all of your Falcons questions that you so desire to ask. And, uh, and then Saturday we'll we'll have our, uh, our 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 regular game preview and. I'm sure there'll be a lot of other fun stuff along the way, uh, you know, on uh, on our website. Or just ask uh, Jason in a multitude of emails whether or not he actually believes Todd Gurley is better than Herschel Walker. Oh, yeah. UJ running back. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. I'll retract that from the podcast. I don't want to send all that your way. Somehow no, I doubt you're going um, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. It is late. Yeah. Jason, we can find you on Twitter at Jason H, but we can read you at theathletic.com that everybody should be subscribed to if they are not already. Um, I read it every day. It's very important and uh, great work as always. So go do that. Read Jason and then listen to him on the podcast. He's a lifelong opportunity um, on this podcast based right. on uh, today's episode. So that's all great stuff. Um, Jason, we will uh, touch base again soon and uh, good luck this weekend. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Chase. Really, really had a lot of fun talking with you. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back in another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.